Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. We're delighted you're listening to this podcast. If you enjoy it, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify and elsewhere. Please also be kind enough to leave us a favorable review. Now, at the Journal's editorial page, we believe strongly in free expression, and each week on this podcast, we explore in depth and candor issues of topical and other general interest. We speak in depth to people who are leading figures in their field, practitioners, experts, commentators, try to give us a better understanding of the major issues of our times. My guest this week, I'm pleased to say, is Michael Levitt, professor of structural biology at Stanford University and world-renowned biophysicist. He's held posts at several of the world's most prestigious universities, and in 2013 was awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. In the last two years, Professor Levitt has been an outspoken critic of many of the measures put in place by governments to tackle the spread of COVID-19. In October 2020, he was one of the more prominent signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration, which called for an end to lockdowns and argued instead for more targeted focus protection of vulnerable people. We're going to talk about that and many other things now. Michael, thanks very much for joining me. Jerry, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, it's our pleasure entirely. So let's talk about, we're now a little over two years since the start of the pandemic. We've had more than a million deaths, it's estimated, in the United States, many millions of deaths elsewhere. But we're only probably beginning to understand the implications of the damage that was done in, by many of the measures that were put in place both in terms of the economic damage, in terms of lockdown, but also perhaps much more importantly, the kind of long-term damage to people's mental health and to very other aspects of life. As you look back at the last two years, and again, as I said in my introduction, you were an outspoken critic of the kind of blanket lockdown approach. As you look back at this combination of a death toll, serious illness, and the economic and psychological and various other social damage that's been done, what lessons do you think we should be learning? Um, I think there are... A few lessons. One is that uh, a global pandemic is a really, a really, really complicated uh, event, and uh, science has taught us that the best, best way to solve complicated problems is to discuss them openly and expect to be wrong. I think that uh, what often isn't appreciated by the general public is that almost all innovative science starts off as wrong and slowly corrects itself. So I think the, the process, and, and I, I can't stress enough that this is a very, very difficult issue. And the reason it's very difficult is that uh, we have to balance, uh, if you like, very simply, um, the disease with the cure. In other words, there's a pandemic, people are getting sick, people are dying, we're worried about hospital systems. Uh, on the other hand, um, modern society is a very, very tightly interwoven fabric. And you mess with one thing, other things are caused. And normally, the way you deal with this is you try to have a, a single cost function that you optimize. And let's say your cost function is um, minimizing death or minimizing uh, death of people under a certain age, as is often done by economists or whatever. And, you know, Everything you do 
as far as that point. So I think it is difficult. It is difficult for politicians because they have to make these very difficult decisions. So I think firstly, I realized as I did back then that it's very difficult. On the other hand, it's also important to try to get information as quickly as possible. Knowing now what to do is probably a good thing because this is going to happen uh, in the future. The trouble is, is that uh, we, we didn't know what to do uh, at the right time. And my criticisms were not based on any a priori feeling that a lockdown is a bad idea or a good idea, but it was simply based on early estimates of the likely uh, burden of death of COVID worldwide. In other words, how many extra people would die uh, versus what would be the cause of the measures taken. And uh, it started off initially with a realization of, this, of the likely severity of the disease from really quite early information and, and limited information. Uh, and then slowly realizing that uh, society does have all these components and that uh, postponing routine cancer checks would, would have a problem. Uh, stopping children going to school would be a problem. Um, disrupting supply chains would have a massive problem for third world countries that are on the edge of starvation most of the time. Um, and quite frankly, um, I think looking back that my estimates of the burden of death were about right. And that my estimates of the ongoing damage, I think were an underestimate. I, I, I see more and more signs of damage increasing. You made very clear throughout this whole debate, you, you know, you're not an epidemiologist, but you are a scientist and you're adept at uh, understanding data. As you look at the data, it was striking that different jurisdictions pursued different approaches. Some countries went for an extreme kind of lockdown approach. Israel was a good example. And most perhaps strikingly, we're seeing it now in China, kind of zero COVID approach. Many countries, the United States, most European countries went for a sort of early lockdown sort of quite aggressively. And within the United States, different states did different things. Again, most strikingly, we had the example of Sweden, which didn't really pursue a mandatory lockdown. As you look at that range of measures and that range of approaches, again, are there lessons that can be drawn? I mean, I think it's true. I haven't got the data in front of me, but I think it's true, for example, that Sweden ended up with not a significantly high, I think no significantly high excess death rate, and yet managed to protect itself from some of the other economic, let alone social costs of lockdown by not really going for a lockdown. But do you have a sense yet as you sift this data, what the lessons are from the different approaches? Yeah, I, I think I do. And, and again, you know, I started looking at this uh, at the end of January 2020. So I started up looking at it when the only data was from China and it was data for about 10 days. Um, Sweden, uh, a country that I have uh, a lot of connections with, uh, I started looking at that at the beginning of March and initially was quite alarmed uh, by their policy. Um, but... Uh, I have friends there and they said, you know, in Sweden, people do, uh, it's very hard to mandate these things. Uh, at, at some point, I uh, felt that masks would be a useful thing. And my friends there said, you know, forget about it. We, we, we can't do that. But I do remember on the 2nd of May, uh, and, and basically in Sweden, the, the estimates that we had for Sweden is that the first wave would get up to about 6,000 reported deaths. This was based on very early evidence from the level of death on the Diamond Princess cruise ship, which was very heavily infected, but only had a quarter of a percent of the deaths. So with Sweden, when we saw Sweden reaching its maximum, I remember 
actually putting out a tweet on the 2nd of, of May saying that Sweden is peaking. And as soon as the peak, as soon as your daily cases start to peak, you know you're sort of halfway through. Um, so Sweden is an exceptional example. But in fact, if you look at the cases where we have good data, and one of the troubles is, is that uh, to know how bad the pandemic or any event has been, you need to record something which should be very easy to record, basically when a person dies and how old they were when they died. But unfortunately, this and you need this information going back. So in Sweden, you have this information for the last... 200 years. In other countries, you have it for five years. And in some countries, you don't have it at all. Uh, there are 35 countries where we do actually know for the last approximately 10 years who died at what age every year. And from that information, you can get an estimate of the death you expect. When you do this, you broadly find that there are three regions. One is Western Europe. The big European countries, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, United Kingdom, and then the other ones like the Netherlands, Belgium, Sweden, Portugal, etc. And they have a total population of almost half a billion people. Very little bit less, maybe 400 million people. They basically were affected much, much less. They were affected. I mean, some countries were affected very little, but they were affected. Europe uh, definitely had deaths. We had the early reports of, of massive death in Italy, but as things settled down, um, but their effect was something like uh, over maybe twice the amount of death that being seen in 2010. 2010, 11 was a bad flu year. We've forgotten about that. And then there were countries that did a lot worse than that. And those are countries, primarily the United States, followed by uh, Chile, Bulgaria, Poland. So in some senses, Eastern Europe. Now, remember, we only have data for 35 countries. So you can say, well, what about Brazil? Well, we don't know. But the United States seems to be exceptional in that the amount of excess death is probably 10 times bad flu recently. I'm not sure of that number yet. But more particularly, what really matters with the burden of death is the division of death between old people and young people. Now, as I said earlier, I'm 75, but the age level that is typically old is, say, above 65 or below 65. It's kind of a, a good level. And what you find is, is that in the United States and those other countries like Chile and Bulgaria, the number of young people, i.e. less than uh, 65, who died during the corona period is much, much higher uh, than in Western Europe. Um, proportional to the population, it's probably four or five times higher. So there's been a lot of young people death in the United States. Currently, in my latest figures, of the million or so deaths that we've just heard, about 57% are over 65, and the 43% uh, remaining is, is under 65. That's a very high proportion, isn't it, of, of in the under 65, compared to the rest it's of the world? It's very high, and... Enormously. And not only that, what is also striking is that if you actually, you can look at this per week, and what you see is that the extra deaths for old people, basically in the United States, corresponds to the waves. There have been five waves. Uh, it turns out that the worst wave was the one in the winter of 2020, 2021, not the first wave. Um, but it then goes down to baseline. For the younger people, it increased by 21%. It had slight waves above that. But the basic level, it's as if from the 29th of March, 2020, that's a very early date. I mean, New York 
started around the 15th of March, but essentially two weeks after the first deaths were reported in New York, all of the United States had an increase of 20% in the extra death of people under 65. It's almost as if they were dying. COVID never spread that quickly. I mean, we're talking about not New York State, not New Jersey, but the entire USA had this increase. Why does the US seem to have had such a high death rate among relatively younger people? And I've put this out on Twitter, asked for reasons people have said that it's uh, politics. It turns out that the thing that we find is the most representative, this is going to sound very strange, is how many or how few young people die in normal years. You might have thought that in a, this is over the United States, but if you have 50 states, so some states... And what you find is, is that the states who did relatively well generally have fewer younger people dying in normal years. States that did badly. So in some ways you could argue, I mean, this would seem counterintuitive because you might think that the number of older people normally dying would be representative of the people dying from COVID because they are mostly older. But it seems that the way you measure the, the health of a state just the public health of the state normally is how well they look after young people because in some ways your future is your young people and some united states states have a much lower natural mortality for young people and those states did relatively well the same thing is actually true globally and countries like bulgaria or chile actually have very high natural mortalities for people under 65 say in 2018, well before the pandemic. So it seems that the other measure which in some ways relates to this is just level of inequality. I mean, Germany did amazingly well. And Germany, unfortunately, is a country where the S word, is a very socialist country, is much less inequality than, say, in the United States. So it's probably that. I think it's also in the United States exaggerated by the access to firearms, the lack of health system, lack of uh, really healthy nutrition. Unfortunately, I think that in a very crude way, COVID is a contrast agent. When people do microscopy, old-fashioned optical microscopy, you actually put a, like an orange dye on the cell so you can see the details. And a contrast agent, so it's almost like COVID revealed differences in society. I think uh, my uh, biggest error uh, range of COVID was not was to, to try to extrapolate from Europe to the United States. Uh, Europe was earlier. Europe ended its first wave before the United States. And I think I was trying to say that the United States is going to be like Europe. But in fact, the United States, because of these young people's deaths, has been very, very different from Europe. So what does that tell us about the intervention measures, the so-called non-pharmacological intervention measures, such as lockdowns and masking? That does rather suggest if there was a higher proportion of younger people in the United States, that the strategy that I think Great Barrington Declaration proposed, and others certainly who were sceptical of general lockdowns proposed, was targeted protection for the most vulnerable. But actually, I appreciate that within that under-65 group, maybe there are particularly vulnerable groups, but doesn't that rather suggest actually that maybe a generalized lockdown for the United States might actually have been the way to go and that those, I don't know what, again, what the numbers are, but those states that did pursue a more aggressive lockdown strategy, were they more effective in, in terms of those those death rates? A strange thing is, and I've again challenged people to find, if you take the 50 United States, 
they're different. Some are red states, some are blue states, some have more unemployment, some have less unemployment, some have are wealthier, some are poorer. And none of those measures correlates well with the amount of excess death. The only measure that correlates well is level of death in young people in prior years, something that has nothing to do with this duration. There are certain states that were good pairs. For example, Florida and California were, were often paired. In Florida, the uh, governor decided quite early on to eliminate some of the mandates. And although the amount of excess death per population was high in Florida, you need to normalize by the number of older people. Florida has a much older population. So one very easy thing to do is express the extra death as a function of normal death. And per million people, Florida has normal death. So Florida and California turned out about the same. New York and Texas turned out about the same. Um, two states that were totally indistinguishable in numbers but had different policies were North and South Dakota, with respectively, I guess, red and blue states. So, But overall, there's no correlation between red-blue. There's no correlation with... Democratic or, or Republican majorities. There's no correlation with number of minority populations. It looks like people have tried, I challenge people on many occasions, show me where the non-pharmaceutical interventions actually helped. And it's really hard to look for this. And again, I tell people that, that a good data scientist has to believe that the data is conspiring to ruin their reputation. In other words, Everything is presumed false until proved, you know, otherwise. And we've really looked for this in the clearest way we can. So it looks so far, and again, people have done more complicated things. If you look at things like Google Mobility and see whether people are moving with cell phones, and they say, well, Sweden actually didn't lock down, but, you know, they stopped moving around. And the difficulty is, is that different countries are different. Sweden has a very low population density and so on. but. In Sweden, children under 16 didn't stop going to school. And even those people who were very for lockdown are now beginning to see that stopping schooling had massive uh, social effects. Uh, again, in children of, say, professors or children whose parents are at home or whatever. But if you have to go, if both parents have to go out and work, and suddenly the children aren't going to school, the effect is massive. So I wish they were correlates and unfortunately one real problem with the whole COVID issue is the polarization of discussion right i do want to come on to that if i may michael but just just quickly because i don't want to lose this thread i, I mean is it too crude to say given all the data you've just cited that actually lockdowns were a waste of time or not worse than a waste of time i mean they obviously had enormous economic and social and, and other health effects do you think they were just a mistake no no, no. i would like to just preface this by saying that I have incredible respect for the difficulty of being a leader and a politician. This is really, really hard. And maybe the leaders who implemented lockdown had no alternative because of the press, because of scare tactics used by epidemiologists, and that's the only way I can refer to them. For me, a good example is Britain, because Britain actually wanted to follow Sweden and then change their mind based on a single estimate of the level of expected death, which was completely wrong. Under tremendous um, pressure from, <laughs> under tremendous sort of uh, pressure from, from media. And other I do think that if you look at lockdown in historical terms, before, you know, what happened now, it probably hasn't been used since the 15th or 16th century. So it is a very, very crude measure. And 
I do think that the collateral damage, which we're still trying to evaluate, is massive. So if you take a country uh, like Germany, where essentially there was no special excess death compared to any of well, to compare, I think the, the last couple of years in Germany are about as bad as four other years during the last decade. So, and no one locked down during those years. That example, Sweden, even countries like Portugal and Spain, that took different attitudes and ended up the same. It does look like whatever you did, you ended up the same, and the route you took didn't matter much. New York State is a great example because it had terrible COVID. I mean, New York State's COVID in the first wave dwarfs everything else. Yeah, and we had incredibly rigid lockdowns. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think yeah. lockdown didn't really help. I think that focus protection would be useful. But, you know, I think one thing that one, one needs to realize and again, this is, this is not a really hot potato, but economists and medical people have not just counted age. If I went to Stafford Hospital and said, I need a new heart, can I get a heart transplant ahead of this guy who's a, you know, maybe he's not a Nobel Prize winner, he's 30 years old, surely I should get it because I'm a Nobel Prize winner and I'm obviously kidding with you. They'd say, no, you know, why should we give you a new heart? It's going to last maybe for 10 years. So age does matter. People normally count years of life lost. And the fact remains that in the United States, people under 65 lost more years of life than people over 65 because of this discounting. So I think this was not taken into consideration. I think it's still unclear why. Um, I think the media was obviously responsible. You know, one trouble with epidemiology, and earlier on you said that I'm not an epidemiologist, I actually now have very strong collaborations with epidemiologists, but one of the roles of epidemiologists is to warn people against pandemics. Generally, people don't take the advice. There were massive warnings about the 2010 bird flu, uh, other flus, Ebola. This time, the advice was taken, I think, because of a strange confluence of factors. Uh, I, I often think what would have happened if the first European country affected was not Italy, but Sweden, things might have been different. If the videos coming out of China had been taken with a grain of salt, uh, if Johnson hadn't been in that uncomfortable position because of Brexit. So I think we were, this is sort of a perfect storm. I, I would love to see somebody show me conclusive evidence that lockdown matters. You know, one of the things that had been done, people are still trying to prove that Sweden actually had massive death. It's very hard because Sweden has the most beautiful statistics you can imagine. This year for Sweden was one of the best years in the last decade. And the last two years were pretty good as well. So, you know, um, we can't find it. We're going to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll have more with Michael Levitt of Stanford University on COVID, lockdowns, and how we handled them. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. We're talking with Professor Michael Levitt of Stanford University about lessons learned from the COVID pandemic. 
I should say very briefly, and I just quickly want to address this, you were criticised quite a lot, you and your colleagues, you were criticised for, especially in the early stages, I think maybe some over-optimistic forecasts of the numbers of deaths that there would be in Israel and elsewhere. Is that a fair criticism? Do you accept that? You know, I said some very silly things. I said that I would be surprised if there were more than 10 deaths in Israel. Uh, the fact is that Israel turned out really, really well, and Israel's deaths are maybe 3 or 4% above what you'd expect, and 3 or 4% is, is, is a very, very small number. In the United States, you know, I, I think I made two serious errors. I didn't realize that we were going to get five waves of COVID. Um, I should have done because basically New York showed such a level of death. All the other places had a catch up with New York. And that's all that happened. I mean, California eventually got to the same level of death as New York. But also, I think my thought that you know, New York, California, the United States is like Europe is actually a big mistake. The United States has turned out to be two or three times worse than Europe, and that was a, a mistake. But, you know, I always tell people that in science, if you don't make mistakes, you're not doing anything original, and uh, it's part of the game. Is it possible at all at this stage to quantify the negative, the deleterious effects of lockdowns? We can see, obviously, some economic data. There may be comparisons. I don't know what the data, you know, comparing a place like Sweden, which didn't really lock down with others or with some states in the United States. Are you aware yet of any sort of serious and even approximately reliable attempt to estimate, again, the economic damage, but then, of course, the wider... We're, we're beginning to see, I know, I've seen data in the United Kingdom, for example, about the number of people who um, who did not get diagnosed with cancer because of, um, essentially because of lockdowns, because of reluctance or an inability to go to a doctor. There are already some estimates of that. I mean, I think we're going to be probably finding this out, aren't we, over a long period of time. But do you have any assessment at all of how much damage was done by lockdown? So I think the point that you raise about, you know, missed appointments or whatever, the effect there, I mean, people are looking for effects, say, of a, of a, the danger of the vaccines or postponed treatment, we're not really seeing this yet. In other words, in other words you, you might have expected that the excess death in the United Kingdom in 2021 would be bad because of postponed treatments. We're not seeing it yet. Uh, on the other hand, I think that there are very, very clear signs of economic damage. You know, a lot of money was printed that wouldn't have had to be printed if we had not shut down the economies. I think we're able now to see what's happening in China with a perspective that makes even the most rigorous lockdown proponent sort of say, well, gee, you know, why are they doing this? What happened in Hong Kong, which for some was a disaster, but Hong Kong had a very rapid, quick burnout. And I hate to use that term, but it's, it's often used. And it's okay. I mean, they, they, they had three or, you know, two or three months of serious COVID and they're going to be fine. They're going to open up. I mean, economic damage is massive. I mean, the fact remains that after the 2008 recession in the United States, death rates increased. Life expectancy went down. So basically, people die for all sorts of reasons. It's not just from COVID. I think it's, there's no doubt. I, I'm just hoping that we're not headed for a very, very difficult three or four years. Now, people may say, well, it's got nothing to do with the lockdown. It would have happened anyway. But others are saying that a lot of crazy things have happened. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think the supply chain disruption, which was obviously the primary driver of the inflation that we're now seeing around the world, that presumably wouldn't have happened without lockdowns. I mean, you know, there might have been disruption because of because of sickness, but we wouldn't have had the, the scale of the lockdown that we've seen, right? But sadly, you know, third world deaths are somewhat discounted. And, uh, you know, people are now talking about massive famine 
in the third world, both because of the Ukrainian war and the supply chain. I remember in May 2020, I went to uh, Tony Robbins and, and we discussed, you know, the, these issues. We were very worried about them. Um, I think it's going to take a while. Um, it's very hard for people to say they were wrong. And it's also very difficult, very easy, in fact, with hindsight to go back and say this shouldn't have happened. I do think that the vilification of Sweden by the press was a terrible idea. Very briefly on vaccines, Michael, what do the data tell you about the efficacy of vaccines, either the initial vaccine wave or the boosters? Any sense there of the efficacy? So for me, again, the best data has actually come out of Hong Kong. Hong Kong, maybe because it's trying to show how independent this has wonderful data. And in their most recent wave, they showed quite conclusively that most of the people who died in Hong Kong were over 80, a very high group. Of that group, the death rate per population of the unvaccinated was three times higher than those vaccinated with the Chinese Sinovac and five times higher than those vaccinated with the Pfizer-BioNTech. In Hong Kong, the population was divided. That's great information because the fact that there is a differential between these two vaccines, but still the Sinovac is giving, you know, three times lower is a big number. It means that instead of 100, you've got 33. And if you go down another factor of you know, five, you have 20. So instead of having 100 deaths, you have 30 deaths or 20 deaths. Both of those numbers are significant. There are lots of difficulties about getting data on vaccination. The statisticians have often tried to get levels of efficacy that are over 95%. And that often is very difficult to believe, but there's no doubt that the vaccines, as seen by this information from Hong Kong, are effective. People are talking about side effects, and I'm sure there are side effects. All, vac all treatment has side effects. I am really happy that the vaccines, I think vaccines also have a very, very clear placebo effect. People feel much less panicked after being vaccinated, and that's good. And finally, Michael, I do want to come on to this topic of the way this was handled by the media, for want of a better phrase, the sort of whole public discourse around it. I mean, first of all, we've talked a little bit about the pressure that the media put on governments almost sort of almost instantly to deal with this by, I think, highlighting the most extreme cases and the most extreme projections and the most extreme examples of the effects of this illness. I think that had a big role. And then perhaps even more perniciously, the attacks on people like yourself who expressed any scepticism whatsoever, or and indeed the attacks on administrations that took a different approach. I well remember newspaper articles when Georgia lifted some of its lockdown measures about how Georgia governor had elected to sort of mass slaughter of, of Georgians. Why you think that was? Why the media became so signed up to one particular view and then so aggressively prosecuted it? I think because it's so news. I think the media, conventional media, was under great pressure because of alternative media, whether it was... Uh, Twitter or Facebook or people just blogging by themselves. I think it's sold papers. I think it was very, very simple. For me, what was much more shocking as an extension of this was the aggressiveness of scientists talking about this. And what was completely lacking was the kind of dialogue that solves hard problems. There should have been a Manhattan Project for COVID, getting together people who disagree with each other. You don't want to talk to people who agree with you. I wish you were really arguing with me because it would be more interesting. And, you know, there's a very clear example, which was actually highlighted in the Wall Street Journal. In the Freedom of Information Act, an email from uh, Francis Collins to Fauci and the current head of the NIH, Lawrence Tabak, was released just four days after the Great Barrington Declaration. 
And in that email, which sounds like it was scripted from the Godfather, Collins, who was the head of the NH, a body that's funding all the research, is basically asking Fauci whether the fringe epidemiologists... Fringe institutions, those three, aren't they? And Michael Levitt, who signed on, who happens to have a Nobel Prize, they had been taken care of. In other words, have we published a strong rebuttal? Has it been complete? And the fact is, all they were saying was, let's discuss this. So what they should have been, should have been immediately a conference, a Zoom meeting of the people who disagree with each other. It would be very easy to have done this. I also have an experience. I was actually asked to write an op-ed for the paper that you're involved in. And I wrote this, sent it in around the April 2020, and eventually it was not published, probably because I wasn't anti-Chinese enough. But I did end the article by saying, you know, that human beings are very, very bad at assessing risk. One reason is, you know, people say, well, gee, I keep on smoking because I know somebody who's over 90 who was smoking. And what I said, and I still believe this, is that I was hoping that artificial intelligence and machine learning, which in theory should be able to assess risk in a very dispassionate way, would advance sufficiently that the next time this happens to us, we can all go to our telephones and say, hey Siri, Alexa, Google, should I panic? And believe the result. Because basically, the estimates we were getting from regular media were very bad. And I think people are bad at estimating risk. I think that newspapers are not people who are necessarily numerous enough to realize that there are often other reasons for things happening. But I think for me, it's the increase in AI, not people's identifications when they cross the road illegally or so on, but just to try to absorb all the picture and get an estimate of risk. People did this. I mean, epidemiologists published this, but they were vilified. This is the big problem. Do you worry that there's a broader politicization of science? I mean, maybe perhaps not in your field, but that there does seem to have been a subjugation of the pure sort of scientific method to, in some respects, to political objectives. I mean, I think the most striking thing was when we had the Black Lives Matter protests. And again, whatever you think of those, the sort of extraordinary statements from distinguished medical professionals saying actually that going out and protesting for Black Lives Matter was actually not a public health risk, whereas going out and gathering on a beach was. Again, that was an extreme example. But it does seem that we've had many of these cases of, again, the sort of political imperative seeming sometimes to actually direct scientific conversation and even discovery. Am I overstating it or is that a phenomenon? No, no, no. I think you're understating it. I think this is the major problem going forward. Good science is breaking paradigms. Unfortunately, this has been well established. You've got to say things which are not right and not acceptable. And unfortunately, this idea of acceptability, I mean, acceptable science is not new science. It's acceptable. And it's breaking the paradigm that's essential. I worry very much. I think that universities have become very much more politicized. I, I should just say for myself, I am actually apolitical. Even when South Africa are playing cricket or rugby. I love watching sports, but I don't care which side wins. And people look at me, I mean, this is like, I'm really weird because come on, you've got to care. Even when South Africa playing cricket and I loved, I played rugby, I kept, I'm a very multinational person. I have multiple citizenships and everyone says, well, which do you like best? And I said, they're all different. I like certain things in England, I like other things in Israel, I like different things in Africa. It's completely natural. Um, so I do worry very much about this. I think that it's going to get worse before it gets better. An Italian friend of mine said the following thing, which is maybe a little bit extreme, but he said, basically, 
most scientists, liberal, democratic, open thinkers. But unfortunately, this time, somebody who represented the other side was correct. In other words, perhaps Donald Trump had said, we've got to have extreme lockdown, etc., etc. There would have been a more balanced approach to it. So I think it's the polarization is awful. And I was attacked, I think, primarily for these reasons. I didn't understand why I was being attacked by colleagues. My numbers were available. They could look at the numbers. If they said, well, we don't believe it because you said this versus this. I found much, much better scientific support from random people on Twitter than I found from my colleagues. And, you know, not everyone. I mean, there were certain groups of people at Stanford who were very prepared to take a chance and go out there and say, call it as they saw it. Others just felt we had a basically toe the line, we had to follow what is politically correct, we had to be, you know, against other people because they are red or versus blue or so on. And terrible idea, and I do hope it goes away because we have other problems coming down the road and we have to face them. Michael Levitt, professor at Stanford University. I'm sorry I didn't disagree with you more. The dialectic would have got us closer to the truth, but I have to say I agree with so much of it, I find it hard to quibble. So, Michael Levitt, thank you very much indeed for joining me on this edition of Free Expression. Jerry Baker, it was a great, great pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thank you very much for listening, and please do join us again next time for another deep exploration of the issues driving our world. Thank you, and goodbye. Goodbye.